Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Hickmania, a series running through 2022 where we'll be reading and analyzing the creator-owned works of writer Jonathan Hickman from his debut The Nightly News through to his most recent output. We'll be reading one creator-owned work a month through 2022, and each month I'll release a new analysis with a new guest discussing these comics. And oh hey, we are taking in the comments here ideas for who the creator we tackle in a creator read-through next year should be okay i've seen suggestions so far for a whole bunch of different creators we've seen karen gillen we've seen grant morrison i've seen ed brubaker i'm sure there have been others if you've got one that you think would be a great fit throw it out there and i'm curious because i have not formally decided anything but that's next year that's a ways away right now we're doing the hickman journey you can see in the show notes we don't have a list for everything of which month we're reading and which series we're reading and today it's all manhattan projects all the time. So we got writer Jonathan Hickman, artist Nick Patera, colors Jordi Belair, letters by Russ Wooten. All right. I am joined today by a guest, a writer I've had on Comic Book Herald, has a podcast of their own. Uh, hey, Salise, what's up? Do you want to introduce yourself? Um, Hi. Um, Yeah, I've written for Comic Book Herald before. It's a lot of fun. I've also written for Panel X Panel, and I also have my own podcast, The Brotherhood of Dada Cast, where we just talk about whatever me and my partner phantomus it's a lot of fun you know movies comics that sort of thing but i don't want to talk about myself today we want to talk manhattan projects yeah absolutely so it, so i'm glad to have you here i think this would be a fun one this is definitely it's probably the hickman book i was most looking forward to revisiting in a lot of ways because so we were just talking a little bit before we started recording here the Manhattan Project launches in 2012, right? And it is, for all intents and purposes, uh, like it is the kind of a level up moment for Hickman, I think, as a creator. It's also a level up moment for creator-owned comics as kind of this image renaissance boom that really starts this year, 2012. And we'll talk a little bit about, little bit about where it fits in the scope of that. Uh, but for Hickman specifically, this is the first ongoing creator-owned book that he had done to this point, right? All this, all the creator-owned stuff that we've read in the club so far has been a relatively tightly contained miniseries, you know, four to six issues. Nightly News is six, Pax Roman is four. Um, it's all these tight, you know, generally small packages. And one of the, the things that we've been talking about is even when there's great stuff, even when there's really interesting moments, because of the shortness of it, there's a certain gesturing at ideas that doesn't get delivered on. And what Manhattan, Manhattan Projects comes in and does is it suggests potentially <laughs> that this will be the series that does that a little more thoroughly. This book series goes for 25 issues. It goes Manhattan Projects number one to number 25. Then it stops, but it relaunches with a four-issue mini, Manhattan Projects, The Sun Beyond the Stars. And then... There's been nothing since, and we're going to talk about that because I've got I've got some juice, Salise. I've got I've got some inside info on on the what comes next part of this that I'm actually pretty excited to talk about. Because uh, spoiler alert, I interviewed uh, Nick Patera this past week about their their project, and they were kind enough to talk about my Manhattan project with me. So we're going to get to that. Okay, we're going to get to that. But I I love this run. I think it's super fun. Um, it is incredibly fast paced and and witty and uh it, it blends the sort of absurdist over-the-top violence and humor that hickman tried on transhuman and it takes that and it actually blends it in a successful way with 
really deep-seated sci-fi philosophy type stuff and a, a sense of a bigger picture and whether we get there or not we can argue about but a sense of a bigger picture that's gonna it's like oh we're on a journey this is gonna be a really cool ride and then the piece of it that really sends it over the top for me and well i promise we'll talk about like what it is <laughs> if you're like what is the Manhattan project we'll talk about that but the piece of it that really sends it over the top for me is nick patera simultaneously leveling up with hickman okay patera's art here because we just read patera's stuff on the red wing he did that for issue mini and even when i interviewed patera he was like that wasn't quite me that wasn't quite me yet like that wasn't what i wanted to be on this book he starts he takes a jump right he takes a leap and becomes this hyper detailed he does these it's been referred to as like where's waldo as panels where it's just like all of these details and fun little you know snippets and asides and storytelling hidden in the pages but then his depictions of the physicists our, our core heroes essentially or or anti-heroes right these physicists are also incredibly memorable as well okay so we're going to talk about all of that and we're going to talk about what this book is but first so Lisa, i want to ask you uh what's your experience with the manhattan projects and and how did you enjoy revisiting it for this conversation i gotta admit uh, i only read the first few issues back in the day because you know there were so many books coming out back then between image dc marvel all the other publishers that existed at that time and I just like, I sort of fumbled at keeping up just because, you know, I was just a kid when it came out. So it was very dense for me, but reading past and reading the whole thing, it it's like you said, you can see, cause I've been reading Hickman since Secret Warriors. So I had, and I read the nightly news after that. So it's like when you trace out Hickman's output throughout that time, you can see, oh yeah, this is him leveling up, you know, more closer to the guy he is now. And a lot of that is, have you ever read Astonishing Tales, you know, the anthology series that he was a part of at Marvel? The Sam and Bobby Mojo World series? Yeah, the one he did yeah. with Nick Bittara. Yeah, Same yeah. sort of thing where it's like there's a lot of that absurdist humor there, but it's a lot less sophomoric and a little more, I don't want to say elevated, but more like he knows how to blend it in with the type of sci-fi, you know, introspection that he likes to do in more of his, you know, overt series. It's not so heavy handed. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is, it is still the book where it's like the first issue is Oppenheimer getting on a Gatling gun and murking people like left yeah, and right. Yeah. But it's also very, it's fast paced. Each issue is a package in a way that Hickman comics generally aren't for my money because he tends to, he tends to like take his time, but here it's more kinetic. Right. And I really enjoyed like watching where it's going along because you can see like one of the things I like about Hickman is that he's not shy about revisiting an idea for later, like with, say, the vault and, you know, the children of tomorrow. Like you can see him like experimenting with a lot of ideas that interest him that he might revisit later, whether it's at Marvel or just with his own work. So it does feel like Hickman figuring things out and succeeding. And the same thing with Pitara who becomes closer to the artist that, you know, he becomes later on. Right. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I, so the, the premise for Manhattan projects here is it's creator own book and the, the solicit, which is on the page of every comic is what if the research and development department created to produce the first atomic bomb? So what we know is the Manhattan project, right? World war two era was a front for a series of other more unusual programs. What if the union of a generation's brightest minds was not a signal for optimism, but for boating, what if everything went wrong? Okay, so that is the premise for the Manhattan Projects and our star players, right? Our, our lineup here becomes 
the physicists of this era, five-sevenths of whom were actually directly tied to the Manhattan Projects, like our core cast. Like the majority were actually involved. And then you have a couple, Albert Einstein, who obviously is just, he's Einstein, was like very tangentially tied to sort of the development. Like, like he co-signed a letter that was sent to FDR um, before World War II, which was basically to the point of like, we have to uncover this type of weapon before the Germans do, you know, but he wasn't actually in Los Alamos as part of the Manhattan Projects. Hickman plays with that. Um, and then the the other one is Werner von Braun, the Nazi rocket scientist who also was not a part of Manhattan Projects. But like, that's kind of a, <laughs> I bring that up because it's kind of key here where like, this is not, this is an alternate history, but very fast and loose with the history piece of it, right? Like it is taking the, some core aspects of some of these real life people <laughs> right and it is taking an idea and then being like what is the caricature what is the absurdist extension of that that we can deliver on so here's an example right j robert oppenheimer but often credited as the father of the atomic bomb because he was the civilian director of the manhattan projects and is credited by basically everyone who's ever you know spoke with him as basically as a genius right um an incredible physicist but he like in postgraduate school had some mental health issues had kind of like an episode where one psychiatrist said i think you have schizophrenia to him this is never confirmed this is not really a part of his life beyond that point he kind of comes out of it and becomes a teacher for a long time, a celebrated teacher, beloved teacher, civilian director of, of the Manhattan Projects, a really interesting voice in terms of what should be done about atomic weaponry. Um, he also gets in a ton of trouble for being communist during, or for, for having communist ties, I should say. During, anyway, it's, I, I, if I'm if it's not clear, I read American Prometheus, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, and I, I basically just have to brag about that here, that I read a book without pictures. So that's, that's mostly why I bring up this history. But the point is, Hickman took that one little thing. He takes that one little piece of Oppenheimer's background, not really a core part of his life, and leans into it super hard and with, with wild science fiction, where now this Oppenheimer is full of infinite personalities, and he eats people and aliens <laughs> to consume their essence and memories, leading to infinite Oppenheimers inside his head. Oh, also... Also, he pulled a Professor X Cassandra Nova and killed his twin <laughs> and ate them and has them living inside his head as well. Uh, Salise, what do you make of the the alternate history aspect of this? The fact that these are real people that this story is based around? Is that in any way, uh, does it matter? Are you interested in that? Like, what's kind of your, your take on that piece of it? My take on it is that it's simultaneously, like, it matters and doesn't matter because on one hand... Hickman is playing as absurdist as possible, like having the whole, like, actually Woodrow Wilson was, no, sorry, um, Lyndon B. Johnson was, like, leading, you know, cults and all of that. And then, like, just making it as absurd as humanly possible. But also it ends up being a commentary on our own because obviously it's just aspects of the real world taken as extreme and satirically as we can. Yeah. And just... I think it works in that way because yeah, you can have your fun, but it's Hickman. So he also has very broad points he wants to make about the progression of science because of its connection to military aspects and just like, okay, what if scientists with an infinite budget were given no oversight, 
not the reality, but also just exploring the amorality of it all, because they end up being worse than our real history in certain respects. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting because, like, so the Manhattan Projects is, you know, that is the project that led to the birth of the atomic bomb, right? And and that is, like, that's what the project was. It was to develop this weaponry, um, and they did it. And it's, like, a remarkable feat of physics and science and engineering, the fact that the country was able to pull that off in the time that they did. But the outcome of that, <laughs> the outcome of that is dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And obviously we don't need to do the whole World War II history lesson, but like some things that were new to me, I will say, upon going and revisiting this history, and a lot of this comes from reading American Prometheus, this was like the atomic bombs were bop, dropped well after Hitler had surrendered, well after Germany had surrendered, Hitler had killed himself months and months after, right? Japan, if you're to believe this this American Prometheus version of events, was like actively trying to surrender, right? And then the bombs are dropped. Right. So it's like and then you think about the toll and the actual experience of what that's like. Um, I haven't experienced it, like obviously like going there and seeing it, uh, even just reading a graphic novel like Barefoot Gen, a cartoon story of Hiroshima. Incredibly impactful. The devastation of it is just like it's it's mind boggling, truly, truly, truly mind boggling destruction. Um, and it's why you have individuals like Oppenheimer and, and these individuals who are involved in the project after the fact having such guilty consciences in terms of what they unleashed on the world. Obviously, the famous Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer quote is, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, uh, uh, referencing Hindu scriptures. But like, that's how you would have felt, right? Like, like you've unleashed just this incredible destruction. And not only that, but now the possibility for instant destruction worldwide, right? Like, it's, it's truly a game-changing, world-changing development. The Manhattan Project's the comic, it's not particularly focused on that. <laughs> it actually it actually speeds through the first like the first three issues basically get us from the start of the atomic bomb building through dropping the bombs and getting through World War II. Like we speed through that. That's not the point. And that that's what the premise is, right? The premise is like, yeah, we're actually not going to fixate and focus on that as much because the real threat here is going to be esoteric stuff like Einstein Rosen Bridges to the multiverse or alien invasions in trying to have an American empire, right? It's all going to be, it's a front for bigger science fiction that is that is a larger scale than just world wars and that sort of thing, which is, I, I think there's a lot to play with the actual science and history of it, but like we've been talking about, like that's not the point of this. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a lot of, have you watched Winning Time, the, the Lakers doc on HBO? No, I haven't. So, so Winning Time is this documentary that just the first season came out, and it's about like Magic Johnson's rookie year with the Lakers, essentially. It's the first year Jerry Buss bought the team. And one thing I realized as I was reading it, or as I was watching it, because I, I don't really know that history either. I know bits and pieces. I'm a basketball fan, right? But I don't actually know it. Um, but as you're watching it, it's like, oh, this is like, it is playing so fast and loose with the truth. Like, it is playing, playing so fast and loose with details and with how people were. It's very similar to what the Manhattan Project is doing, honestly, except it doesn't own its absurd transformation as much, maybe, as it should. Like, it it still plays it like, maybe this is real, you know? Like, it's not quite as clear about the fictionalized nature of it, whereas the Manhattan Projects, it is not pretending, right? And some of the clever things, like some of the stuff Hickman does here with real people are really smart. Um, Harry Dogland, who died of radiation exposure at Los Alamos, the first individual to die of atomic radiation exposure, uh, is turned into... Um, kind of a ghost writer 
type, you know, just, or Dr. Manhattan is probably a better example, right? Just being a pure radiation. Uh, Enrico Fermi, who comes up with the famous Fermi paradox of there must be other lives out there, turned out he he's actually an alien <laughs> in this version of things, right? No wonder he came up with that paradox, right? So you get fun, smart plays like that um, on these characters and, and on their worlds. Uh, all right, I've been talking a ton. Solis, tell me, what which of these characters do you like the most? Who are who are you most interested in? Who are you least interested in? Like, let, let's hear that piece of it. Um, if I had to consider which character I'm the most interested in, it's probably Oppenheimer himself, or rather Joseph Oppenheimer, because that's the whole conceit. Which is, it's not historical Oppenheimer; it's his evil twin who Cassandra Nova'd him. Yeah, and just from there, he ends up being one of the most fascinating characters in the comic because they do play with. He ends up being the natural extension of what the Manhattan Projects becomes, which is empire building for both, you know, the U.S. and Russia who end up joining forces to conquer the solar system. And it's like this is the natural version of it, which is he's viciously good at it. He's not a super genius because his brother is, but he killed and ate him. So he's able to play effectively his role. And even though they make it very clear early on, everyone realizes, oh, right, this guy might be insane or is insane because he eats an alien in front of Groves like early on. This guy is a natural fit, but they don't question anything he does until it's absolutely too late and he turns the tables against them. And it just plays into what I love about Hickman's work when it comes to like the great men, you know, ideology which is essentially okay you let the snake in and then eventually he bites you anyway mm -hmm. i don't know that's just the character that it fascinates me the most and it gave us the probably the best issue of the comic which is the oppenheimer civil war so that's yeah. that's where i stand like it's it's oppenheimer's all the way and that just ends up being the biggest flex you know and once we get to the civil war within the oppenheimer mind yeah, I would totally agree. So I, I think if this is anyone's comic, and I actually think most, like Einstein gets some pretty interesting moments. Um, it, Richard Feynman is our is our narrator, effectively, right? Like he is the yeah. the everyman genius or the closest we get here of just a regular, a regular old physicist genius. Um, all of the, the one structural thing that I like about the Manhattan Projects that Hickman does here and he's done in almost everything since is he uses these epigraphs, right? These quotes throughout, but especially in the beginning as kind of these, you know, it'll be like opening quick scene uh, and, and then epigraph to kind of ground you. It reminds me a ton of one of Hickman's great loves, Frank Herbert's Dune, right? You get Princess Irulan's accounting in the first book. That's what Feynman is doing, but it's clearly from a position well after this story has played out, right? It's from an older version of the character, one who is looking back and is teasing and is hinting at things that are to come. And some of those things I think are still, we're still waiting on because <laughs> the comic never actually gets to them. Um, and it, but it's, it's this very good setup that Hickman has done throughout East of West, throughout X-Men. I, I love actually structurally the epigraph setup. And it also like, it's a good way to characterize Feynman um, beyond what we see on the page. But then to your point about like, yeah, like, okay, what is the point of Manhattan projects? It is so similar to so many things Hickman has done, whether we're talking Marvel or creator owned, which is super geniuses deciding the fate of man in secret, right? You know, it's, it's small groups deciding the fate of the world in secret. Uh, it's the Illuminati, it's shield, 
it's it's the Manhattan Projects. We're going to see it in East to West coming up next as well. Uh, it's it's a tale as old as time, <laughs> basically, in the Hickman verse. And it's also like, yeah, like who's at the table, right? Who's at the table here in terms of who these people are getting to decide? And with Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer is, I guess, the main character of the story. In so, like, he is the main threat and like a main focus in so many ways. The most issues are dedicated to Oppenheimer because you get three issues drawn by Ryan Brown comes in and fills in for Patera and Ryan Brown's great did a, a God loves astronauts. I think uh, curse words with was it Charles soul. Um, but he does these, these mindscape issues. They're all inside the brain of Oppenheimer. And like you said, it shows a civil war between the blue Oppenheimer and the red Oppenheimer, which is basically Robert and Joseph, his twin. Um, I, to my knowledge, Oppenheimer did not have a twin. It's just taking J. Robert and again taking that brief dalliance with a schizophrenia diagno um, diagnosis, and and fleshing it out into just comic book madness, comic book absurdity. Um, and they're glorious. They're glorious, right? Like artistically beautiful, uh, just like mad, mad violence, and it can take literally any form an imagination can take. Uh, those Oppenheimer issues are such such a fun indication of like, this is stuff you can do in comics that you kind of can't pull off in other mediums with the same degree of success, or at least it's very, very hard comparatively. Um, and then the wildest thing about Oppenheimer is he's teased as the ultimate threat. We have all these glimpses of, you know, the aliens he's consumed and he's got secret plans, right? So as they get out of the atomic projects, Basically, you know, Manhattan Project is a Cold War book, essentially, right? It, it teases itself as a World War II book. It's really a Cold War book. And then Oppenheimer's like, okay, here are the things we need to do, right? Here's what our purpose should actually be um, in terms of, like, you know, a successful uh, Earth, being prepared to be an empire out in space, these sorts of things. And then he's got secret projects. When he, when the blue Oppenheimer, and I can't remember which is which, Joseph or Robert. It's Robert. Robert. Joseph. You. Joseph is the red Oppenheimer. So Joseph is the one in control throughout most of this. He's more of the serial killer kind of evil one. Joseph kind of has to get on his level to escape the mindscape. When he actually gets out and he's free, finally, the second that happens, I'm not even going to spoil it, right? If you haven't read that far, go ahead and read it. But the second that happens, it's like, boom, a flip is switched and it's a great, great twist. Um, there's still clearly more Oppenheimer stuff to come, I think. Salise, were you satisfied with this story like like does it feel like as it stands are you like i have enough manhattan projects i'm good it definitely does not feel like it ended where it intended to because there's a lot of stuff still on the table like what even like the secret project was and then on top of that like you know the whole the whole aspect of them breaking apart you can tell it's not the end because even then beyond the sun beyond the stars continues the chapter in a numbering established by the series itself. So it doesn't feel like it was anywhere close to finished. Yeah, I think it I think it does deserve a proper ending of some kind if it came back. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in agreement. I think so. The comic has one thing going for it very strongly. And we've kind of alluded to it, but we haven't specified the first 20 issues of the book were plotted in terms of the big beats by Hickman and Patera. Like they knew certain things that were going to happen. But they worked Marvel method, okay? Um, and and remember, too, like, where Hickman's at as a writer at this point in time, he's gotten a ton of reps. He's gotten a ton of reps over at Marvel Comics, but he's also, at the time Manhattan Projects is launching, he's taking over Avengers, 
and he's taking over Avengers, New Avengers. This is a book that comes out, I think, two times a month. It's clearly busy, <laughs> right? There's clearly a lot going on. So he works Marvel method with Patera. And what that affords Patera is like he has more flexibility in terms of where what can happen and how the story can actually be told between the big beats that are identified. And I think what that generates, what that creates in the reading experience and why it's kind of so fun is a really fast paced anything can happen energy. Um, and that runs for about 20 issues. And I think it's really, really good. And then you can feel the exact point. I think it's right about when Lyndon B. Johnson shows up, basically, the, the Texas gunslinging vice president. Um, you can feel the exact point where they kind of did the thing as far as they had plotted out. And then it's just total blank slate, total blank slate Marvel method. And they're like, we actually don't know where this is going now. And that's when you get issues 21, 25, which kind of finally stumbles to like, okay, the team's going to break up and we're going to do limited series focused on each individual member, right? But then all that actually came out, again, due to schedules and busyness, primarily Hickman's, was The Sun Beyond the Stars, um, which told us the Yuri, um, the first Russian cosmonaut, and his dog, uh, Zalika. Laika, yeah. Who is a talking genius dog, and then once she goes to space, is turned into like a human, humanized talking genius dog. <laughs> so we get that story. We get them reconnecting out in space, but we don't get anyone else's stories. And those are the most interesting stories. We still got Einstein's out in the multiverse. They're with Feynman. We still got, uh, it sure seems like Oppenheimer's going to come back, despite what we've seen, right? Because Feynman is teasing in these, in these epigraphs, like that was the greatest threat, you know, yada, yada. Like, what was he actually going to do? Uh, we don't know what's going on with Harry Daglion. Is Fermi actually dead? I think Werner von Braun's in space somewhere. Who knows what's going on with Crows, right? There's a lot of open ends. There's a lot of loose ends. And it's not so far removed from like a, and then they went their separate ways and you can kind of live with it. But if you enjoyed this world, and I definitely did, there's a lot more to get to, potentially. Um, so when I talked to Nick Patera this past week, uh, and I asked him about this, he was like, yeah, it was like, it was a schedule thing, but he was basically like, I always want to do this book. Like I, I like, I love Manhattan projects. Like, like for him, it was a huge career level up, like artistic level up moment. He loves working with Hickman. They seem to still have a pretty close relationship. He talks a lot. Um, Patera has this, this book he's uh, uh, crowdfunding right now called Axe Wielder John, which is really great looking comic. Um, but he's like, he got, he got notes from Hickman on that, right? They're close. They're, there's rumors of them like blowing up, not getting along, blah, blah, blah. Like that stuff seems to be totally fake. So he would like to do it. What it sounds like, what it sounds like is that Manhattan projects and, and all of this interview up on the comic girl channel. So people actually want to see the actual direct answer, find the Nick Pitera interview, uh, go check it out. But basically he was like, um, this is in like some developmental circuit. Okay. The Manhattan projects is like potentially going to get picked up. And it sounds like if it got picked up as TV or a movie or whatever it would be, I would hope TV. Um, but if it gets picked up, then they would come back and start dropping these limited series again as sort of immediate tie-in. I think that'd be exciting as hell. I think that would be incredible if this thing got picked up and then they went back and revisited it. I don't know how close we might be to that or not, but that was, that was very promising to me because I kind of thought like, okay, this is done. It's been six years <laughs> since anything's come out. Um, I don't know, Celise, how, how on board would you be if they started releasing, you know, limited series again? I would be up for that, you know, and we all know at this point, six years is just a hibernation period at Image. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, I would be interested, and I do hope TV, but that feels like a strategic decision because if it does get picked up, 
you'd rather have a new number one in the stands than say go pick up the trades of the tv cover or whatever that feels like something hickman would do yeah yeah i mean it seems like that's the smart strategic play and honestly like this story would benefit from it and i i, I actually think too like it's no fun in the moment as a comic fans when things get delayed and they take forever you know because if you're if you're in it you're living on a week by week month by month cadence right in the next the next hit of story every month so when a thing is delayed six years it's absurd but if you take a step back and you actually look at it from a perspective of where are these creators at artistically like they can come to this book with like like they're better creators now you know they're not the same necessarily right there there's probably things maybe some of the humor Maybe some of the absurdity, maybe some of the the willingness to take chances actually diminishes where they are now, right? And this is all just hypothetical. Who knows? Maybe it wouldn't. Um, but in terms of like command of the craft, you know, both of them are like they've they've leveled up again, right? On various projects, you know, for Hickman across Black Monday murders, across X-Men, but Terra now with Axe Wielder John. Like it would be fascinating to see them come together and collaborate again. So I I super hope that happens. Uh so whoever's whoever's looking at these Manhattan Project rights, come on. Come on, <laughs> you've got you've got the cash. At least put it on Hulu. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, come on, like throw throw it on Hulu. Here's the thing: if you're a Disney or a Disney-owned subsidiary, you already owe Hickman royalties. I'm gonna guess beyond what you're giving him for his previous and ongoing contributions to the MCU. Okay, like like they're taking a lot from Hickman's Marvelverse stuff right now. The least you could do is just put all of his stuff in development. Put all of his creator-owned stuff in development. Give us, yeah, Manhattan Projects on Hulu. If it, you know, like, it goes two seasons, fine. Get the ball rolling. Get some cash in the man's pocket. He's contributed enough. That, that's my take on that. Seriously, at this point, they probably owe him a development credit. I mean, I, 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 that's, I, I tweeted this at the time, but, like, I hope part of his X-Men contract, you know, when he was like, hey, I'll go back to Marvel, I sincerely hope part of that was like renegotiating the MCU cut of things because there's two creators right now. Jim Starlin was phase one. Hickman seems to be phase two, okay? You know what I mean? In terms of like, if you're looking at an actual core of the MCU and their phases, who are the creators and who's the work that is most central? Obviously, there's a ton of spinning plates. Ed Brubaker's Winter Soldier is a big part in phase one, right? But like, if you're looking at the core, the Infinity Saga, that's Jim Starlin's baby, right? get Jim Starlin paid. I think phase two with it looking like it's 2015 secret wars with incursions getting referenced in Dr. Strange. That's Hickman's baby, right? Yeah. But even like infinity war and Endgame, they riffed heavily on Hickman. So did like black Panther and a bit of, you know, winter soldier as well. It's, I don't know. I just hope going forward. Yeah. He gets, you know, a bit of that change. Yeah. Yeah, total agreement. Uh, okay, so I, I'm excited to potentially see it return. I think as it stands, it it does start to feel a little bit aimless. I So I, are you in agreement with me, I guess? And you, you don't have to be, obviously. Um, as far as the ending and then the sun without the stars, I don't know. Were you were you more into those than maybe I am? Um, did you enjoy some of that? Because I really felt like there was a hard cut, and then it was like we kind of stumbled to the finish line on Manhattan Projects, and then Sun Beyond the Stars knows what it's doing, but it's also a weird... It's a weird series, and maybe the storyline I was least invested in. What, what did you think of those? I kind of felt the same way because Manhattan Projects just suddenly ends. Like, it just comes to a hard stop, and it's like, okay, everyone, go bye-bye. Yeah. And then Sun Beyond the Stars just exists to, like, reunite y Yuri Gagarin with Laika, 
and then their story suddenly comes to an end too. Like it did feel more coherent. Like it did feel like, okay, this is what we want to do. Yeah. But it also doesn't feel as energetic as the main storyline. Maybe it's because these characters exist as sort of like a satirical, like think kind of like Archer where it's like, it's kind of a joke machine in structure. That's not entirely the same with Manhattan projects, but some of these characters exist to like clash off of each other not just like in an enclosed environment, so to speak. Yeah. It's like the equivalent of like a bottle episode in television, but like with mostly guest stars, that's kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah, I, I would agree. So uh, let's talk about that actually. So like I've seen in, in references when you go back and read reviews, there's a lot of talk about like, this is a very funny book, like it's comedy and it's got a, it's got a clear sense of humor about it. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's especially funny. Like I didn't, I don't read the Manhattan projects and I'm not laughing out loud ever. Um, which is, which is a hard thing for a comic to pull off. Like, let me be clear. Like that is a hard thing for a comic to do is to be like, laugh out loud. Funny hellions for Marvel is the last book that I can. That's the one that I can think of now where I'm like, I laughed out loud several times during reading hellions. Manhattan project isn't that do you, do you think of it? Do you think when people describe it as a comedy, like, like for me, it's like a dark comedy or what they would call like a black comedy, right? Where it's like, there's a certain over-the-topness and maybe violence or absurdity to things that are happening that is, it's not it's not serious, it's comedic, uh, but I don't find it hilarious. I don't, I, I, are you, do you have a different reaction to it than I do? I would say I had about the same one because there is an obvious level of humor and Hickman himself tends to like, when he, when he wants to like play a joke, he will play it to the hilt like in New Mutants or something because... He, he's got a sense of humor about him, but with Manhattan Projects, a lot of that is baked under, oh, right, Oppenheimer is going around murdering people because he enjoys it, or, like, it's squished in between things like the Star City and Manhattan Projects agreeing to essentially rule the world and then expand that rulership over to the entire galaxy. Yeah. So not not everything is played up for humor, but there are some bits where it's, like, something horrifying contrasted with in a very over the top way. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say you're right. And I do think like, I don't want to be overly critical of that piece of it because I actually think Hickman who can be very funny, who does have more of a sense of humor than he often gets credit for. I think a lot of times because his works tend to be very serious. His humor for me works best when he's not, when he's not joke writing. Right. When it's more fluid and it's just sort of, you know, the way people react to situations being absurd. Um, but if he's actually like sitting down, like beat, beat, beat punchline, you know, that stuff tends to miss for me. And that's what transhuman, why I had a lot of problems with that, even though there's like a few gags in there that I think are funny. There are more that I think are just like, oh, like, like really bad stuff um, with Manhattan Project. It's all pretty integrated. It's all pretty organic. And a lot of the comedy comes from just Patera having fun. With, like I said, those Where's Waldo type things, right? Every time we get a glimpse of the Oval Office, whether it's the Truman presidency or it's JFK, it's insanity, right? It's absolute madness. And they're clearly just like, you know, hey, we're exacerbating these physicist personalities and caricature. Well, we're going to exacerbate and, and, you know, say like, here's what the Oval Office would look like with these presidents in this type of verse where it's, again, like JFK famously womanized like throughout his presidency. They take that and they run with it and it's bonkers, you know? So in that sense, I appreciate and enjoy the fun that they're having. I just rarely think it's like, I would never sell this as a comedy to someone, I guess. It's an absurdist science fiction tale and I love it for that. 
Um, but I would never be like, oh, you got to read this. It's hilarious. You know? Yeah, it's def there's definitely a layer of difference between absurdism and something that's ha-ha funny. I definitely fit in that corner there. And it's definitely a product of, like, Pitara himself. Like, he'll include little gags like the ch like John Lehman getting shot or something. Or him and Hickman getting shot. Like, half of the half of the grossest pages are them putting their friends in as gag characters to get shot by somebody. Yeah, we get, uh, so we get Hickman and Patera. We get Lehman and Rob Guillory, the creators of Chew at the time. Uh, well, they're still the creators of Chew, but they were they were working on an image at the time. And then you get uh, Scott Snyder and Greg, Greg Capolo alongside, I think, Jeff Lemire. Um, so you get some, if you know, if you've been to some cons, and you know it's some crazy. And and Snyder actually even has a Batman shirt on because he's working on DC New Fifty Two at the time. Um, they do get it, and they they get it hard. In some, yeah, it's a very violent, gory book. Like we should not undersell that piece of it. Like it is the violence is heavily, heavily over the top. Um, it, throughout just all, it's not just scientists in a room sciencing or anything like that. Uh, so all right. So I hope to see more of this book. I think as it stands, you know, it definitely you could look at this and be like. What is the, I think one thing that we're going to have to keep talking about because of the way X-Men ended, which is to say it didn't, right, with Hickman's <laughs> with Hickman's vision. Um, it's like, it, I think there's a certain stereotype right now of like Hickman doesn't finish stuff, right? And I think one thing I'm interested in is as we go through the creator and works, like, well, when is that true and when is that not true? And on the, throughout all the earliest works that we talked about, those all do end. Sometimes they end sat unsatisfactorily, but they all like, clearly started at one point and had a designated ending in mind. And maybe you wish they had gone for more like Pax Romana. I wish had gone for more. Hickman talked about it at the time, like wanting to revisit that world. It never happened. Um, same with the red mask for Mars, right? In terms of like, there could have been more, like that could have been more fleshed out. It just never happened, but they still all ended. This is the first one I would say in this journey where it's like, yeah, this never actually ended. We're still waiting. Uh, I would say, you know, and it may happen. It may still happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And I think that can be a little disappointing. One thing I want to ask you, Salise. So Hickman at this point in his career, he's written a gazillion Marvel books, right? He gets a ton of reps between 2007 and 2012 on Fantastic Four. Like he's wrapping up his Fantastic Four FF run basically when this is starting and then transitioning to Avengers. But obviously he had also done Secret Warriors. He had done S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, probably something I'm forgetting. He talks in interviews around this time about worrying that he's less sharp, about worrying that like, He's not as hungry like he was on the nightly news, for example, when he's just starting and just trying to get noticed. So he's actually not as like precise as he needs to be. He says like he has the the competencies and then some because of all the Marvel work, but he worries that he's like less, less purposeful, maybe less sharp. Do you feel that on Manhattan projects or is that in any way a problem? Like when you think about other stuff you've read from the writer and kind of where it compares. I think most I think it does feel like it ended as a byproduct of like most of his energy being focused on other projects because you can see like with Marvel most of his brain power is there like with Avengers with Fantastic Four Secret Wars all of that because he was in a developmental stage at Marvel where it's just like you're not just like putting out a book you're also like contributing to the overall thrust of the Marvel Universe which means a lot of your attention by definition of time is going to be demanded there yeah so and given that you said that he was working marvel method with patara it's not the kind of thing he was doing early on like nightly news or pax romana 
where it's like these super focused gunshots where it's like everything he does is very deliberate. A lot of it is hyper absurdism, gory violence, that sort of thing. And that's not to say it's less good, but I can also see where he's coming from, where it's like, okay, maybe I'm not put, putting as much focus onto this as I need to. And it might also be why The Sun Beyond the Stars is different, because this is where there is a little bit more tension, maybe. Like, that's at least my read on it, because it's, it's not the same as his other Marvel work, by definition of it being a more action-y and less deliberate book. Because he tends to slow down, like, when he does something. And he's got like you know all of his attention on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think what you're saying makes sense. Um, it's it's an interesting experiment, I think, because because on one hand I really love it. <laughs> it's a really fun run. Like I was actually thinking as I was rereading, especially those early issues, I was like, I'm gonna have to bump this up on my all time rankings. Like by the time I'm done with this, because I I had actually never finished either. I don't know if we said that up front, but like I had never read. Ironically, like I think I read up until like basically the break, like issue twenty. And then I like changed shops and I just never caught up. Um, but going back, like once I got done with it, I was like, oh, I've, I've actually, like I had it ranked 171 on the best comics of all time list, which if you Google the best comics of all time, you will find Comic Book Herald. Check it out. It's a great list. <laughs> but I had it 171 out of 700 plus. That's really high. Anything inside the top 200 for me is like, I loved it. It was great. I've got it ahead of like Fatal, um, just behind DC's New Frontier. It's in, it's in good company, basically. And I was like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> like, like I actually don't think now having finished it, like that didn't help it too much beyond that. Um, but I've got it high. I like it. I've got it behind East of West. I've got it behind the Black Monday murders. Now, what I think is interesting when you compare it to those runs, um, one of which is longer, one of which is much shorter. Uh, but when you compare it to those, those feel less reliant on the artist's contribution. Because I think that's the thing about the Manhattan Projects is Patera is doing more heavy lifting here than Hickman has had to give to an artist ever before, certainly. And in a lot of ways, really since until Decorum. And if you've read Decorum, which is a book that came out within the last year, that's a book where Hickman is like very purposefully like, Mike Huddleston, do your thing. Do your thing. Carry this book. Um, and he does. <laughs> it's great. Uh, Huddleston's work on that is absolutely incredible. But I think because they're working Marvel Method, because Hickman is in a position of carrying the Marvel Universe workload-wise, and then launches East to West the year after this, right? And is trying to put out this Feel Better Now graphic novel that has still not seen the light of day. But when you go back and listen to interviews, he's like, that's the one I'm writing and drawing. That's the one I'm most excited about. And it's like, this book has never come out. It's like one of these like white whales lost to time. Um, maybe for the best, because it sounds more like transhuman than anything else, right? And I'm, I'm not sure we need it. Uh, but anyway, like he clearly has to lean on Patera, and Patera rises to the challenge, I think, for the most part, right? Definitely for those first 20 issues, right? But it's but it's as a Hickman book, he gets to maybe take some of that. Maybe, maybe it didn't feel this way for him as a creator, too. Like, you don't, maybe not. You know, we're assuming a lot. But, um, you know, it definitely feels like the one where he just was like, to do this for longer and to have it escalate and, and have a velocity that is exciting as a story, I need to give over more control, essentially, than I'm used to. And I think that's part of why it kind of feels different from pretty much everything else in his creator-owned catalog. Because from here, like from here, everything is more or less going to feel more like the old stuff than this, which is, it's just goofier. It's just inherently, you know, I keep saying absurd, but it's just, it's got that sort of willful, 
intentional playfulness that really is not a big part of his repertoire after this point, which take on heady themes and high science fiction concepts. Um, and it, I appreciate it for that because it, it's a little different and it comes off very well, I think. Uh, I don't know. Where do, you, where do you think it stands kind of compared to what comes after this point? I would agree because it definitely, you're right that Pitara's presence is the biggest one in this book. Because a lot of the a lot of whatever humor there is tends to be like more gross out, more like hyper violence, a little more NSE, like when he's on a satirical kick, stuff like the comic book creators getting iced gags and stuff like the designs of the aliens. And if you notice, there's also a lot less like data pages, anything like that. That would be Hickman's normal imprint. It's a lot of him leaning on the artist. And it's definitely its closest relative, I would say, is Decorum, because I read that recently, the hardcover, and I got to agree, it's a brilliant book, but a lot of it is leaning on the artist to, like, just propel the book rather than Hickman trying to get especially heady. Like, it's the same type of, not especially humor, but, like, leaning on the artist to carry the book, and Hickman just kind of is more in the background compared to usual with his writing. And I think that's a good experiment because sometimes it's like we've kind of had that conversation on Twitter where it's like, well, what about plot? And it's like plot sometimes is just a mechanism standing in the way between a character and what they want. And sometimes it's okay to just like let the artists do their thing. And I think it's a fine experiment for Manhattan Projects because if nothing else, it's really fun to read. Like yeah. it's, it's not as heady, but you're definitely getting something different in Hickman's catalog out of it. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not like he's checked out either. Like, I don't want to oversell yeah. the like it's not this isn't, you know, the 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 worst version of like a Stanley Marvel method where it's like <laughs> he gave somebody one sentence and then they did the whole story and took all the credit. Like, it's clearly not that, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of there's a lot of good sci fi ideas and explorations. Hickman's doing some stuff here. Um, again, because we're playing with the biggest physicist and like the real life sci-fi heroes but then it's set during an era when you have you know the golden age of science fiction texts there are some literal homages like to dune for example when einstein's traveling the multiverse we get one world with the big worm and that sort of thing um but then there's some stuff like like hg wells uh the shape of things to come which is a very brave new worldy envision of hg wells you know kind of this this godfather of science fiction um which is a very much a you know great men putting together the, the shape of the world type type book. Uh, there's there's a lot of reflection and sort of meta commentary, I think, on ideas like that. that Hickman, you know, because one of the core questions of this is like, you know, can and should and what would happen if the great minds of the world, of, of Earth's history, were actually running the world, right? If governments were just these sort of puppets that they stepped around or bullied their way out of, you know, and they were the ones in conjunction with the Russian star city side of things that were like, no, we're actually in charge here and we don't really care about your petty problems. We just care about developing rockets because, you know, space aliens are coming. Right. And that sort of thing, um, which is which is a question that I think he will answer more directly and more deliberately and more philosophically in other works. You know, uh, it, that it's it's a question that's out there here, but because of the the playfulness of it it never really gets addressed but it's there you know it's there um and and i think like he's he's asking interesting questions and he's having fun with it um and he's occasionally stumbling onto some of his best hickmanisms 
in like the the Feynman epigraphs, right? Just these these powerful philosopher king style quotes that that could be like found in religious texts, you know, like that that sort of thing that he pulls off almost better than anybody that I know. He's definitely got the flair for it, like in something like Dune. I also wanted to note, like, I feel like it's easy to see which side of it Hickman lands on because one of the very first things they do, the Manhattan Projects, is commit genocide as their first action when they go to outer space. Right. And from there, it just, like, it balloons because everything they do ends up, like, either going horrifically wrong or just, like, they're shown to be as cruel as humanly possible even when they're even when it's played absurdly like you can see like where hickman falls on it so i wouldn't say his presence is gone it's just more of a weird word to say but reserved compared to like how assertive he normally is as an authorial text hmm. that's interesting yeah maybe maybe more room for interpretation given that it kind of kind of stays in the middle of the story the whole time <laughs> you know it never really gets out of that gear Right. Yeah. It never really finishes. That's the weirdest part about it because it just sort of like, it just stops. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like, if there, if the thing with the Einsteins and Oppenheimer, which again, I'm not going to spoil because I, we're going to talk about the book in full, obviously, but I don't want to spoil that particular beat. But if that happens on like issue 40, after a lot more stuff had happened, that would actually feel like an ending to me, uh, potentially, but because of where it is, right in the middle of the book and because like there's still so much to happen and to come it actually just feels like a midpoint nice nice twist but one that needs resolution <laughs> beyond that for it to feel sufficient so yeah i'm with you i mean i think there's i will be incredibly excited if this is going to come back um at some point hopefully in the nearish future but until then you know it remains a a very enjoyable read uh it is not my favorite of the creators necessarily but it is definitely it's in the conversation like i said i think i have it right now ranked like my third favorite um hickman creator own thing uh and you know i feel good about that like it's it's it holds up um it is it's one of those things too where i always talk about this on the my marvel Reading club where we go through marvel where i'm like i generally hate revisiting stuff <laughs> you know the, the mcu is the best example of this because it's like I can have an amazing experience in the theater, have a blast, be like, that was so much fun. The MCU is a blast. And then if I rewatch it at home, I'll just be like, I don't like this at all. <laughs> like, you know, I'll have this experience of like, I didn't enjoy a single second of that. Um, the Manhattan Project, I did not have that problem with it at all. Like it was, it's been, I guess because it's been a decade now since it came out too, you know, had enough time removed. But going back to it, I was like, I was really engaged. I read it in two nights maybe. Um, and I was super glad that I did. So I would highly recommend this one. I think it's probably... It's the first. No, it's not. I was gonna say it's. I was gonna say it's the first one that I would recommend to people in the club, like unreservedly. You know, where I'm like, yeah, you should just absolutely read this. Although that's not quite true because I still kind of feel that way about Pax Romana, uh, even with all its flaws. I, I think that's a pretty tight, smart work. I liked it a lot too. Like, it's definitely in the upper tier of the Hickman creator own sphere for me, and it does feel like a necessary work because you're sort of seeing. I don't know how to put it, just sort of a mid-tier evolution between Hickman where he was like when he was starting out, both like with his creator own and then Marvel, but then also Hickman of the last, let's say three years. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, you mentioned like the data page evolution and that sort of thing. So like the structural stuff that we see happen here, that will continue the epigraphs, 
the the like double page spread breaks in the comic essentially where it's just like a title sequence but that's going to keep happening you know we see that in, in east of west certainly and in other books um just kind of that like a very like branded sense of style you know where it's like i know i'm reading a hickman book um and it's because here's a quote here's a pause tell us what the book is here's a quote back to the story right that sort of thing um, that becomes kind of ingrained and stylistic in a lot of what he does. He really only uses a handful, if that, of like data page stuff. Like there's one of like alien civilizations and there's like a map and it's like labeling them all. And it feels really out of place because it never comes up again. Like it's not referenced. It's not important, <laughs> but it feels a lot like the sort of thing we might see in a Black Monday murders um, or X-Men even. You know, like it feels very powers of ten or decorum actually is probably a better example. Uh, but yeah, so it's like it, it's really that stuff's not integrated here. And I actually think that's because, you know, it's because it's not integrated. It feels the least like modern Hickman, probably of any of like the good stuff that he's done again, because Patera is the one driving the ship. Right. Patera is the one. All the visuals are, are his visual language for the most part, for the most part. Um, what was I going to say there? Oh, so. As far as X-Men connections, <laughs> um, Albert Einstein does work on finding a chimera. So we have that as early as 2013. Hickman's thinking about chimeras. So I thought that was fun. Uh, we also have the idea, and this is a loose connection, but it's like you have this idea of the United States and Russia working together scientifically. The Manhattan Projects and Star City coming together. And there's a quote somewhat to the effect of like, you know, the thing we had never imagined was like, what if we worked together and like trusted each other? And that feels very Krakoa to me with the it's heroes. It's a Romulus and Remus quote, you know, yes. it's about Romulus and Remus. What if they had worked together and built something better? So yeah, it is kind of, it is kind of that earliest stage of what would become Krakoa. Yeah. Very, very basic building blocks type stuff. Um, but other than that, I didn't actually see a ton of ideas or themes or especially the stylistic ticks that would that would become beyond the epigraphs like beyond starting everything with a quote which obviously has stayed um through the Kirko era of x-men too there is there is one little thing i don't know even know if it counts but it's it does to me but there's an homage to 2001 you know space odyssey like the very first scene like with the monolith yeah. they do the same he does the same thing in house of x number one where xavier's the monolith and the mutants are crawling towards him so, and they do it again in Manhattan projects. They have the wrote, they have the multiverse bridge as like the monolith here. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, all right. Any, uh, any additional thoughts or things that you have that you want to talk about that we didn't get to? Um, I guess, uh, were we going to cover like, I guess where this stands alongside the image Renaissance at the time? Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So again, like this came out in 2012. And it is really part of the first wave of what, you know, kind of what I look back on as, as the image renaissance, right? So that's like basically the years 2012, I would say till about 2015, um, where suddenly it, it was it, image comics had the financial incentives and they had the structure and they were kind of uniquely positioned um, to capitalize on digital 
in a way that was just like just then really becoming accessible through Comixology. Um, I don't know if you remember, but like a lot of folks like myself getting into comics around the time, you couldn't go on Comixology without a huge image sale, right? They were just smart and strategic about the marketing of it, but they really started getting like all these big name creators to come in. And you see from 2012 through 2015, you see an exodus of Marvel's best and brightest coming more and more into images create our own side of things. And one thing you hear Hickman talk about a ton in interviews around this time is it's the most profitable thing he does. Like he, he is not hesitant to talk about the fact that he gets paid better with a good image book than he does doing all the Marvel stuff, right? So he's he's gotten all those reps and he's put in all that work and I'm sure he's doing fine. But he's like, clearly this, there's a financial incentive for these creators to come and own their own stuff on the image side of things. So you see Matt Fraction doing that. You see Ed Brubaker, you see Jason Aaron a little bit, um, Jonathan Hickman, uh, Karen Gillan eventually, uh, and Rick Remender, probably some others that I'm that I'm forgetting. But a lot of the names who were hot in the big two side of things uh, start coming to Image and and really peddling their wares <laughs> a lot more thoroughly. Hickman was already there, right? His creator-owned stuff was already coming out through Image. He already had a relationship. Um, so he just keeps it going, but he gets going on the ongoing wave. And in 2012... You have the launch of little books like Saga and like Fatal by Brubaker and Phillips. Uh, you also have Bedlam, which came around around that time. Uh, I think that's an expensive one that I actually really dug. Riley Rossmo, too. Riley Rossmo, who's awesome on that. Um, but that's that's kind of the first year where these types of books come out. And then by the time you get to 2013, it's just like insanity. Black Science, Deadly Class, East to West, Lazarus, Manifest Destiny, Pretty Deadly, Rat Queens, Revival, Sex Criminals, Velvet big name books that are still highly, highly regarded by a lot of folks, including myself. Um, this one for me, again, because of that Renaissance, it was definitely one of, this was almost certainly the first Hickman book I would have been reading. I, I was actually collecting ongoing comics at this time. I was collecting this one in print. It stood out then and it stands out now. It's not literally my favorite of the Renaissance. Like, like this isn't as good as Saga. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend it is. But, it I mean, it holds its own. Again, I've got it just above Fatal. I, you know, I've, I've got it a little bit behind stuff like A Deadly Class, maybe. But, I mean, it, I don't like it as much as Sex Criminals. I don't know. For you, like, where does this where does this rank against all those, all those kind of big-name, beloved books that came out around that time? I would say Manhattan Projects ranks pretty highly because a lot of those books were a lot where these creators like sort of firing opening salvos. And it's also something I don't think it's talked enough about is how some books just sort of stopped and started or just stopped entirely. Like there was this one image comic that like made a big splash at the time called Non-Player. Do you remember it? No. Okay, so it was actually really good, gorgeous, you know, art and everything. It only got two issues after four years, hmm. and it never came back. Like it just ended. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's a bad publication, Cadence. <laughs> for what for what it's worth, I think it was because they su the writer artist suffered an injury. But wow. it's one of those things where it's just like there was so much coming out at the time that it's difficult to stand out. But also a lot of people were figuring out this model for the first time, which is yeah. how you got stuff like, let's say, Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chiang, like doing starts and stops or like with Saga doing starts and stops on their right. comics, just because they had to figure out a model that lets people catch up for the trade, but then go to the next arc. 
So all things considered, like with Manhattan projects, I would say it did pretty well because Hickman was figuring out that model too, just like everyone else. And it seems like he had it pretty well because for example, have you seen the covers for the original series? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have most of them in print. So yeah. Yeah. But they're distinct. I mean, I think that's, I was trying to think like, why did I pick this up in the first place? Like I was trying to remember. It looks like literally nothing else. I think it's that. I mean, I, I truly think like the covers are distinct. I probably gave it a flip and then Patera's art and, and Belair's colors grab you from there, you know? Yeah. But you also don't see them in the trade paperback because mm -hmm. like he ditches them entirely for chapter headings. So I, it's, on a personal opinion level, always insanity to me when covers aren't included in a trade. <laughs> it I drives me nuts. Yeah. My, my brain works on that same level where it's like, where are the covers? Mm -hmm. Or I was just reading Fear State Saga, like the hardcover, and it's like the the lettering on the covers is gone, and it's like my brain cannot register this. Yeah, 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 but totally. If you notice, like Hickman has a pretty decent command of like what he likes a product to look like, from floppy to trade paperback to whatever deluxe omnibus, whatever. Yeah. And it's, you can see like he's got it figured out just like with the Krakoa era. Not to go on a Hickman is an auteur rant. It's just more like all things considered, like compared to what everyone else was doing, I'd say he's doing all right. It doesn't rank next to like my favorite image comic of all time, which is probably Southern Bastards. See, but that's that's an interesting comparison too for me because when you when you start talking about the starting and stopping problems, like forget like like the worst case scenario, you know, like you mentioned, but just on like a a where are they now level, you know, like I don't want to give Hickman too much flack for like Manhattan Projects quote unquote not ending because it tries it tries to give some Definitely. sort of conclusion, but like Southern Bastards, like how did that end? I don't Oof. remember Bitch Planet, like how did that end? I don't remember um lazarus might still be going <laughs> like when i'm going down the list here i'm like a lot of these comics are like still kind of going or like took forever to end you know what i mean like a yeah. lot of stuff from this era like started super hot was great but never really had an ending in mind um so the ones that do approximate an ending or or better yet actually have one <laughs> are the ones that i actually in retrospect i'm like oh that was that was underrated the fact that that knew where it, like Wick, Wick Div, for example, I probably underrated that book had an arc and it knew where it was going to go and it had an ending. Um, same with Fatal, which I didn't love the ending, but it ended. Um, and then obviously Saga is like, well, no, that's still just ongoing. They just took a three year hiatus, you know, which again, when we're dealing with it on a comic collector month by month cadence is bananas. But when you when you're looking at the grand arc of these things and somebody reading the trades in three years, who's going to care? Right. Who's going to care? It's just going to be a great comic. Um, so, yeah, a, a little bit of Manhattan Project credit there. And I think as far as the Hickman author thing, I mean, first off, I, I do like there's a reason I'm doing the whole year of his creator and stuff. It's because he's one of my favorite writers. I think he's a fantastic storyteller. But there's also because he comes to the comics world, having had a professional career, you know, prior to this point, there's a business acumen and a marketing strategy to him understanding like to succeed, I have to stand out. And not only do I have to stand out with story, but actually like the more important thing is I have to stand out with branding and I have to stand out that all my books look different than the other books on the shelf, right? You're going down, you're looking at all these, these wild covers from J. Scott Campbell and Frank Cho on Marvel and blah, blah, blah. And here's just a white page with a logo in the middle. And that's a Higman book and you know it right away, right? So like there was certain just small, smart stuff that he was doing to, to get out in the world. And then too, 
you know, I talked about the digital aspect of this, but 2012 is the year, at least for me, where it was like, oh, digital's real. Like, like people are going to buy comics digitally, not just pirate them, but like they're going to buy them. Hickman talks in one of the interviews I listened to, and I'll, I'll link this up in the show notes. He says like he approximated it's like five to 15% of print sales, like, like digital is catching up to like five to 15% of his print sales at this point in time. Um, I would think that has only gone up in the years since, you know, but maybe not as much as, as some people were forecasting, but it is like, there's a, there's a business acumen to this which which is important um in which the image renaissance at this time definitely tapped into it's definitely a thing for him because he talks a lot about that x-men digital line that he wanted to do during the pandemic so yeah. it's it's something that's always on his mind it looks like and i would say the business acumen part of it is important because he's got he's always had like an idea of what he wants his books to look like because even Secret Warriors, that starts off with like the very slick, you know, graphics at the very end of the first issue. And it looked like yeah. nothing else I was reading at the time. And then you go into Nightly News, which just like opens up with the most insane rendition of an, an assassination I'd ever seen in a comic. Right. So it's always carried over with what do you want these comics to look like? And the floppy looks nothing like the trade. Because, you know, you have the really slick covers, you know, for the print issues. And then when you buy the trade paperback, it's just like it reads more like a firm novel. I haven't read the deluxe editions, but I imagine they're different than the trade paperbacks, too. Yeah, I don't have the deluxe. Apparently, apparently they did two of the deluxe editions, which I think covers the first 20 issues. But then they never they never did a third. <laughs> so Can't strange. imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a bummer. But uh, but yeah, no. All in all, like I dig this book. It it remains one of my favorite in the creator room catalog. It remains one of my favorites of the Image Renaissance. Um, and and both Hickman and Patera, I think they take a leap here, and they're both uh, better creators from this point forward. I would say even you know I talked about kind of the directionlessness of twenty one to twenty five, but even within that. It's still, it's not like it's not a Manhattan Projects comics, you know? You get the caricatures of Lyndon B. Johnson. You get this weird take on uh, Fidel Castro. <laughs> like, like there's stuff in there that will stand out and that you will remember. Um, and again, like, it's not history. It's not documentary. But even within this book, there's certain things where it's like, they'll reference historical figures, and now I'm going on a deep dive rabbit hole down, like, oh, who is this pers person actually? Like, I spent a weird amount of time trying to figure out how much of a Nazi Werner von Braun was because <laughs> like this comic is like pretty into him, like pretty into him. Like, I feel like it's pretty pro von Braun and he's a genius, right? Like, like the reason we go to the moon, like rocket science, like, but then like, there's all this stuff about like, he worked with Disney, like the literal Disney, Walt Disney to like advocate for space exploration in in the oh, 50s man. and like consulted on a lot of like disney stuff and i'm like this guy was a nazi that's bonkers uh but that's real that's real history so it it sets you up for researching that stuff i don't know did you do any of that uh that actual history type digs or was that just me i did actually i was listening to richard feynman's uh, autobiography oh. via hoopla it's a pretty i didn't get too far like before we started this but it was very interesting and it does like you can tell like hickman was doing deep dives even if not all of it comes across like obviously like yeah he's the kind of guy i can imagine being a history buff but for something like this it makes sense that you would exaggerate like the tiniest 
most unexplored aspect of someone's personality and then just run with that. Like Oppenheimer's possible schizophrenic episode and, you know, Feynman having his own autobiography, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like, there's definitely, you know, I talk about it being an absurd caricature of the history, and it is, but I think you're right in that there's definitely a love and a research done. Because, like, even early with Oppenheimer, there's a reference to, like, on oh, your brother, the communist. And it's like, that only makes sense. Like, if you know Oppenheimer's brother, Frank, like, was actually a member of the Communist Party. And, like, you knew about this whole ordeal that plugged out. Like, Oppenheimer was, like, he was wired and tapped by, like, Jagger Hoover for, like, most of the 40s. Like, even when he's on the Manhattan Project. Like, they were they were constantly on him because he was super far left politically to the point of maybe aligning with the Communist Party. Right. So like, that's a real, that's real. Like he, he went through security hearings and McCarthy trials and all that stuff. Um, this isn't the comic to dig with into that, but it, it sets the stage for like, if you want to read more about it, you can, and you should, it's interesting stuff. So, okay. Uh, I think that's going to do it for Manhattan projects. Highly recommended. I think everybody should read this one. Uh, next up, I'm going to be doing secret. Uh, that's a seven issue mini in between this and East to West. Okay. So we got a mini, it's going to be Hickman and Ryan Bodenheim again. Uh, and uh, and we'll be coming your way next month with that one. But you can find the full list in the show notes about the reading cadence here as we go through all the creator-owned works throughout the year. Uh, Solis, where should people find yourself? Um, well, if you want to follow me on Twitter for just whatever I'm reading at the moment or whatever, my Twitter handle is uh, at SchwartzAdraware. I guess you could put that in the show notes or something. Yeah, yeah, I'll link to it, sure. Yeah, because that feels like a devil to pronounce and also i run my own <laughs> podcast uh the brotherhood of data cast um i think it's just at the data cast also is that a doom patrol reference yeah i'm i was reading uh the doom patrol arc with the brotherhood of data and my co-host loves that you know arc too so we just decided yeah. to steal the name for ourselves perfect Perfect. All right, cool. Yeah, we'll link to some of your stuff in the show notes as well. Uh, this is Hickmania. I'm Dave. You can find all my stuff at Comic Book Herald. Please like, subscribe, share the channel, and the podcast, and all that fun stuff if you want to hear more. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics.